I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we are talking about designated events on the PGA Tour, formerly known as elevated events. Frankly, elevated makes more sense in terms of nomenclature, but we're talking about the new series of events on the PGA Tour that, you know, it's kind of concentrating the schedule around certain big tournaments that all the top players are going to be at. It's a major change on tour that's really going to come into focus next season but we're kind of rolling into it this season. And the occasion for this, of course, is that the Waste Management Phoenix Open, the first full field designated event of 2023, is happening right now, this week. Uh, Here to talk about all of the interesting issues around this with me is Andy Johnson. Andy, how's it going? It's going great, Garrett. I, uh, I'm super excited about this. You know, as this came to fruition, I think there are some qualms about how it was rolled out this year. And, you know, it goes back to kind of the response to live that the tour had last year, right? But I think the exciting thing about it is the is what's happening, where we know when the best players are all going to be together. And then the the future of it, what it looks like next year. Um, obviously it, it sounds like it's a pretty clean slate and next year is going to look a lot different than this year's elevated events look. So this year's elevated events, just to list them off for you, are the Century Tournament of Champions, which happened obviously early January at Kapalua. It didn't really feel like a full elevated event because it was kind of its normal self, right? It was the the winners and and some more uh, you know players from the past season. The Rory McIlroy wasn't champions. there. The tournament of mostly champions. It's yeah, the identity of that event. It's a little bit up in the air right now, but it wasn't full field, right? It was just Kapalua. The Phoenix Open this year is going to be a little different. That's the first kind of real designated event. Then we have another one next week at the Genesis Invitational Riviera, then another one two weeks after that, the Arnold Palmer Invitational Bay Hill. Players and the majors are, of course, designated events, but the other ones that are not the players or the majors would be the Dell Technologies Match Play, RIP after this year, by the way, the RBC Heritage at Harbortown, the Wells Fargo Championship, the Memorial Tournament, Jack's Tournament, the Travelers Championship, TPC River Highlands, one of my favorite kind of little PGA Tour events, the, the little tournament that could, that's going to be a designated event was, this year. It's a little tournament that could, given Bubba's comments about potential appearance fees under the <laughs> yeah, table, appearance true. fees. I don't, I don't know if we can, yeah. we can label the travelers as that. It seems like the crooked PGA Tour event. It's big insurance open. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I, I like the Travelers uh, Championship. I lived in Connecticut for a few years and, and went to a couple way back in the day. I think that's an outstanding venue. But yeah, it's no mystery why it would occasionally just get Roy McElroy, you know, <laughs> showing up at the, at the Travelers. Uh, there was maybe 
little bit of money involved. Then the other designated events that I haven't mentioned yet are the uh, FedEx Cup playoff events at the end of the season in August. So that's the designated the, schedule the right now. The majors too. The ma- yeah, I mentioned that earlier, yeah. the majors and the players. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, yeah, I mean, th- those are pre-designated. Like the PGA Tour didn't have to give its <laughs> uh, <laughs> give its stamp of approval to those events in order for them to, to feel really elevated. But the rest of these events that I mentioned, these kind of normal PGA Tour events, some of which were bigger before and some of which didn't have that big status, uh, now have bigger purses and that's basically what it is this year. Bigger purses and a guarantee that the top players are going to show up to them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, uh, as you alluded to, the Kapalua uh, event was not really, like, it's not what indicative of what a designated event is going to be. And I think this week with the waste management, we're going to get our first look. It's It's pretty incredible place to have it roll out obviously with the super bowl in town this week um but i think there's a lot of questions about about what you know the future of these are going to look like and how different it will be from this week's elevated event at waste management that had a full field um had monday qualifiers had sponsor exemptions and had you know effectively a you know top 125 plus extras feel. So like, is that going to be the criteria going forward? And then, you know, the most important, you know, one of the, I I don't think the most important question, but one big, really big question I have, what is Kapalua next year? Are they effectively like being held hostage to be a designated event? Because, and, you know, does because of the concept two- of the tournament, right? Yeah. Because because they have to have the the winners there for it to be the tournament that it is. Exactly. In the expansion of it's the top thirty now in the FedEx Cup is a is a going forward rule, right? So anybody that makes it to East Lake is there. So this if it's not, it's another event that is kind of required, you know, by by the PGA tour, but not maybe not required. If it's not required, how many guys are showing up if they have to play all these other events? Like, I think if it's not required, you run the risk of any European that has Ryder Cup fantasies is not going to show up. You know, they will mm-hmm. go to Dubai instead. Um, you know, so like, do you want to lose John Rahm, who's obviously fallen in love with the event, who's shown up, played extremely well the last two years at this event? Like, you know, and obviously, so that that is a big conversation. Is that event going to expand out? Is it going to be bigger? Are these elevated events going to have different field sizes or are they going to be standardized? Yeah, I mean, those are all really legitimate questions about the designated events. As you've been indicating, uh, you know, it gets so complicated once you start thinking about actually executing this idea and all the all the stakeholders who are involved, the players, the sponsors, you know, they're all going to have their own opinions about what this should look like, uh, their own feelings about whether the old way was better than this new way. And so we'll get into all of that. But I think that you and I might agree that the Waste Management Phoenix Open is a really good event to designate. Like this feels like a one that should be designated maybe every year. It, maybe it doesn't even need it every year. But this is this is a, a fantastic event has turned into a an event that really kind of penetrates the general public consciousness in a way 
that most PGA Tour events don't. And a lot of that has to do with the crowds there and, and all the content that you get out of that, the 16th hole scene. But also, I think that this is a legit PGA Tour golf course. TPC Scottsdale is a well-designed course. Um, it's not, you know, it's not Riviera. It's it's not maybe it's not Kapalua. It, you know, the, the architecture is uh, is aesthetically just fine. But strategically, I feel like this is a pretty good golf course, especially on the back nine. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the front nine is is quite forgettable. And yeah. <laughs> I think but the the back nine really culminates right and the close of it is what you kind of want. And obviously, I think something that has to be talked about is the 18th hole what it was 10 years ago, even compared to what it is today, you know, it was a very difficult closing hole and, and what tech, you know, just the advancement of having a hundred guys on tour that hit the ball over 300 yards versus, you know, 10 years ago, there was maybe 15 like yeah. that has really changed the dynamic of the close, but 15, 16, 17, and and we see this at a variety of courses. I you know honestly, I think that the close at um at PGA West is really good. I like I have always yeah. been fascinated with the close at PGA West. And the it's eighteenth similar... hole is super cool. Yeah. So yeah, that that is the same recipe in a way. T PGA West TPC Sawgrass has a similar recipe with a mm -hmm. late scorable par five, a shortish shortish par three, and then a you know a tough par four. Now TPC Scottsdale throws in a drivable par four into that mix. So you have, yeah. you know, a you know, what was once 18, you know, is not what it was because of just distance, uh, sheer, like how far these guys are hitting it. But it once was a tough par four, but the recipe of two, three, really three, really scorable holes coming down the stretch makes just theater. And I think 16, Obviously, doesn't have the the trouble that PGA West or Scott or uh, Sawgrass has around it, but it has the atmosphere. Yeah, it has a stadium. It doesn't need to be architecturally interesting. I, I kind of wish it were, but at the same time, because it's such a simple hole, it kind of allows the stadium atmosphere to be the star there. But fortunately, the holes around it, 15, 17, I think are really well-designed tournament golf holes. On 15, you have players laying up on that hole a little uh you know a little less than half of the time, right? It's an island green par 5. Not everybody's going for that, especially if they don't drive it well. And so, you know, that's a fun hole to kind of watch and and see how the players approach it strategically. And then of course 17, the drivable par 4 you know, it's not just unique because it's drivable. It's not just exciting for that reason. I think the reason that it's that it's fun to watch is that it combines a really wide fairway and a huge green with a lot of trouble, right? Water all around. And so there's this huge range of outcomes. You know, you can be in a lot of different places on that hole because it's wide, because there's a lot of short grass, because the green is huge. You can be in a lot of different places. You can have a tricky chip from short grass. You can have a huge long putt, or you can be in the water off the tee. And just that range of potential outcomes is really what I'm looking for in a short par four. Yeah, I, I agree, especially when they get the pin. Everybody thinks, oh, the pins over on the left side by the water are super cool. When the pins are over right 
on the right side of the green and they and because that right side of the green what it does is it really penalizes the bailout um and that i think is a is a general little bit of misconception is the cool pins like if if somebody's setting up the course that oh we got to push it up against the water that'll be really neat but really what when the pins over on the right it eliminates it doesn't eliminate but it it dissuades the bailout, which, it, you know, when the pin's on the left, that bailout's very friendly because you have a lot of green to work with. But when the pin's either back or on the right side, that becomes a much more difficult shot. And, you know, your percentages of chance of making birdie from the bailout position gets much, much smaller. And I think we've seen some really cool, like one of the things that happens on that hole in particular is we see the ball on the ground a lot. You know, um, if you think yes, about right. last year, Sahith Thagala is in, I think he was tied for the lead and he hit a, what looked like a great shot and it just got a bad bounce. It rolled down into the water. Ricky Fowler a few years ago hit it right through the green it, over the back. What looked like a great shot and it got a hard bounce, you know, and everybody's, oh, did he take too much club? It's like, well, if he doesn't get that chasing bounce, if he gets a soft bounce that, you know, we're talking about an iconic shot in his career. So I think that is, is one of the magical things about 17. And, and, you know, I think it goes a little bit under the radar, you know, it, it, it's become, it's risen in popularity, but one of the great things is, is the penalty for bailout uh, with those right pins and the back pin, but also the magic of the ball on the ground. And that, that little bunker is placed perfectly where, you know, you need to just barely carry that bunker in order to run it up on the green. And, you know, if you, carry it too far you run the risk of running through and thank god the pga tour hasn't put a grandstand behind the green yet you know because <laughs> <laughs> that would really ruin, a big ruin blue the wall. hole one other thing i wanted to talk about with the course and what i like about the golf course as a whole is that it rewards distance a great in, in great degree it is very advantageous to be long but it's also almost equally, if not more advantageous to be accurate. You know, yes. you look at the the variety of winners of this at this place. You have Kevin Stadler, not a long guy. You know, you have Phil, pretty, you know, long hitter, but, you know, can be crooked, but the desert. But then you have Hideki twice. You have Webb Simpson, who won and lost in a playoff to Hideki, uh, who's a very short straight hitter Hideki I would say when he's playing well is a is a longer player but very precise Brooks Kepka has won it twice Brooks Kepka one of the things that's gone wrong with Brooks Kepka in this kind of demise is he isn't as accurate as he was off the tee he was kind of re- reached this unicorn status of a player because of yeah. the distance combined with the relative accuracy of that distance you know it's always important to when you're talking about like people will look at oh, this guy hits it really far and he's not straight based off his accuracy percentage. But that accuracy percentage needs to be considered with the distance that they're hitting it, right? So it's not an apples. A 280 hitter who's 60% in the fairway is not an apples to apples as a 300 hitter who's 60% in the fairway. That 300 mm-hmm. hitter who's who's 60% is far, far more accurate because the further you hit it, the less accurate you become. And this was the real secret of beefy Bryson, right? Mm-hmm. Bryson for a at while. The, the height of his beefy era. Yeah. I'm talking about not now, <laughs> but at the, you know, at his U S open winning height, 
he was combining distance with accuracy in basically an unprecedented combination, except if you're talking about maybe Brooks Kepka in 2018, 2017 at Brooks Kepka's height. And so that that is an underrated thing. Yeah. And that's the thing that makes DJ and Rory such impressive drivers over the totality of their career. You know, mm-hmm. they hit it extraordinarily long distances, but they're very, very accurate for their length. That's what makes these unicorns of driving the golf ball. But the cool thing about this venue is you get such a wide range of winners because that accuracy is really important. So a shorter hitter, like we saw Ches Reeve in a long playoff with Gary Woodland, you get that contrast of playing styles. Obviously, Woodland, very long, Reeve short. Webb Simpson in a playoff with Tony Finau. You get that long short, right? It's uh, and that and that I think is what makes this venue extra, you know, cool. Like I, on the periphery, it doesn't have like that glitzy stuff. The like the bunkers, the aesthetic, the front nine is about as forgettable as you can get uh, on the PGA Tour. But it does, um, it provides uh, a wide variety of play, which which I think is. You know, the biggest recipe for success on the PGA Tour is venues that don't just emphasize a singular skill and, you know, almost pre-require a singular skill like a Torrey Pines. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason for that at Waste Management is that you have room to play off the tee, but you have a lot of tricky tee shots where you have to decide, okay, am I going to hit it 325 here? If I'm a PGA Tour player, right, that's the reality that they're dealing with now. Am I going to hit it 350 or should I throttle back a little bit, hit it 280? There are options like that on a lot of the holes, and there's usually quite a bit of risk in going with the long option. There's water or there's desert, right? And so there's there's a real calculation to be done off the tee. And as a result, sometimes big, long hitters who don't quite have it under control get punished at the Phoenix Open, whereas accurate hitters kind of are able to position themselves well and and they do well. I think one of the things is that the, and Joseph LaMagna, who obviously is on this podcast fairly regularly, he, he wrote in his newsletter about Tory, uh, is that the the wide, the really wide miss at Scottsdale is penalized heavily with the desert. Absolutely. Yes. And water in a lot yeah. of cases. The smaller miss, you know, missing the fairway five yards is not heavily penalized, right? So the big miss is what is what really gets you at at Scottsdale, and obviously those that's what big hitters do, right? But there is a huge advantage. There are bunkers that big hitters can carry. So it's if that big hitter has the driver going, they have a huge advantage, which is the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So. You know, in a lot of ways, the Phoenix Open represents what a designated event should be, right? There's a good golf course here with real strategic options and that allows many different types of players to thrive. And so you get interesting competition year after year. You have a great local culture, you have a committed sponsor, and you just have a unique product, right? This is what a designated event should look like. This is a true elevated PGA Tour event. And, you know, I think that that's part of what is exciting about the designated event series. If we want to get into some of the positives here, what does this new program bring to the PGA Tour? I think it, you know, identifies what those special events are and it confirms that, 
in the eyes of the fans, in the eyes of the tour, in the eyes of the players, so that we really know this is a week to get excited. This is a week to see the best players face off against each other at a good venue in a good atmosphere. And that's why I'm so pumped up about this event. I mean, it's not just because the Super Bowl is in town, though that adds a little something to it. You know, I'm genuinely excited about the Phoenix Open in a way that I haven't been before for this event. Now, I'm usually pretty excited about it, but not to this degree. And I think that that's one big, big positive for designated events. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that the biggest positive for designated events centers around expectations with the fans. All right. We know, unless you follow the tour with a very, very fine tooth comb, you aren't going to know week in, week out, like who exactly is at the event. With these designated tags, it emphasizes to fans that these are the events that you have to watch. These are, these are the ones that you can plan for. That on, <clears throat> hey, on, on Thursday, you're making plans for the weekend. You know, hey, I kind of want to watch this event, right? It's like when, you're, when your favorite team, the schedule comes out, right? You know, if you're a sports fan, if you're a golf fan, when the schedule comes out, you can circle, hey, these are the events that I want to plan my weekends around if I'm interested in watching live golf on TV. And I think that's really important versus the old kind of like you knew certain events were big, but like, you know, the the regular the run of the mill PGA Tour event, not really knowing who's going to be there when you turn the TV on. So I think the biggest thing is that it gives the tour a it. It gives fans a real expectation. They understand when they turn on the TV that all the big players are going to be there. And for the most part, the only times that that was the case in the last 25 years, or whatever it may be, when really since you know the tour expanded, added events, and players started to contract their schedule, which, which started with Tiger. It, it created this wide gulf of... There are way more events and players are playing way less. So since that occurrence, you know, when guys used to play 30, when big players used to play 30 events a year and there were 35, 40 events, you knew big guys were in every field. But now it's like big guys play 20 events, 25 events, and there's 45 events. You know, that mm -hmm. gap got bigger. So that's the biggest thing is that as fans, you know what to expect with designated events. The best players all at the same spot. And that's really big because it it creates, you know, and effectively it creates like, you know, for the tour, 12 other players' championships, which is their most competitive event. And I would argue, like the thing, we talked about this a little bit at the waste management, like it's up in the air whether, like who's going to be designated next year and it's on the sponsor to pay up, right? Yes, Right. Because the PGA Tour just sort of chose chose the events this year, said you're designated. But next year, it's going to be different in the sense that sponsors will be asked to it, essentially it'll go to the highest bidder. Yes. So, you know, these these sponsors are going to have to pay up for designated events. And, you know, waste management didn't have to this year. It, the big question is who's going to pay up for those events? You know, what yes. what events are going to? I think it's really important that waste management is one of those events because it it falls on Super Bowl Sunday. 
You have a captive audience of people that are watching TV that day, that have Sunday set aside as a day that I'm going to be watching sports. And I think the way that this event has infiltrated the greater sports world, it's really important that this one is a elevated event. And the question is, is the sponsor going to want to pay for that? And that's, you know, that's a tricky thing. And I think one of the compelling things about these designated events going forward is what are they going to be going forward, how people are going to qualify and and so forth. But, you know, it's important these designated events, as we've seen with like the diminishment of other events, that the the, the schedule cadence works, you know, like what if four sponsors all want to pay up in their four events in a row, you know, leading into a big tournament? You know, what happens there? You know, so this is it's a super fascinating um, aspect. And, and I think, you know, it, there's I they obviously are trying to figure out how to flip the 20 million dollar purse bill. And that's that's why they need these sponsors to pay up, because in an ideal world, you would almost handpick these events and structure your schedule around it so that you don't you can ensure good fields across the board. Well, you need to for the sake of the players, partly, right? Because if you have four designated events in a row and the players need to go, the top players need to go to all of them, then what are you going to do? You know, that that creates a really tricky situation. And it's an example of all the different constituencies that the PGA Tour needs to serve here. The sponsors, the tournament organizers, the players. You know, they are really caught between here. I mean, the fans are also part of this, but well, we're usually I mean, last on the list. Well, I mean, it's not a good fan <laughs> situation if you have four I, four of, of these no, really big events. It, it a, starts to wear thin. Yeah, it, they Absolutely. become less important the more you have yeah. of them. The scarcity of these is actually super valuable to the tour. Yes, and I would say also, and this might be just sort of a, a niche golf media take, and, and call me out if that is the case, but personally designated events, having designated events helps me enjoy the lesser events, the non-designated more. It helps me receive those in the way that I think they should be received, which is I shouldn't expect this to be a big time event. I shouldn't feel that there's something lacking if there is a quote unquote weak field here. I should understand it as an event that's an opportunity for players to get to the next level. And I'm watching this event in order to kind of scalp those players, in order to see who's next, who's going to be next on the designated stage, who are going to be the players who are really up and coming, who are some of the veterans who are having a revival. Those are the storylines that I'm going to start to attend to with the non-designated events in a different way because I know what they are. I know that they're not supposed to be big events, and I'm not disappointed if they don't turn out to feel like big events. I can just sort of understand them in that way. Do you think that's a take that the normal fan would have, or is that just me as somebody who watches golf every week, covers golf, is saying? I think one of the things that the tour had suffered from really the last 30 years is an identity crisis with the events. So, you know, what's what every, you know, the idea was that every event is the same. That's what the goal of, of the tour was, was to homogenize the events. Every sponsor pays the same amount of money. You're getting the great, greatest players in the world because we're the greatest tour in the world. But the reality was they weren't. 
And it created a, I think where it clarifies it and makes it a little bit easier is, is the way fans experience the golf is through the broadcast. And if you feel that way, I guarantee the broadcasters feel that way. Tommy Roy feels that way. Seller Shy feels that way. And they are able to craft their broadcasts around these very concrete identities. It creates identities with events on tour. And I think that's super important. And I think that creates a more coherent storytelling throughout the year. I think one of the fascinating things, honestly, with smaller events is when you have fields that are weak, like the uh, American Express this year, right? The ability for John Rahm to go out and win, that is a, a, a bona fide great player. Like great players go to small events when they're expected to win and win. You know, that is a quality that we see with great players. And I think that along with giving younger players the opportunity to take down great players, because there are almost always going to be because of the way the sponsorships work. And one of the things that the tour has pushed with sponsorships, if you sponsor an event, you need to spend a a considerable amount sponsoring a players also. So that's one of the things that the tour is doing in response to live to attempt to leverage, you know, to make up that that wage gap, really. Like when you talk about the money gap that lives offering, one of them is, hey, we're going to lean on these sponsors of tour events who also sponsor players. So when a tour event, when a, a sponsor sponsors a tour event, usually what that also yields is those players they're sponsoring show up. You saw it last week with Pebble, Jordan Spieth playing. Uh, another sponsor of that event is Cisco. Victor Hovland is a Cisco player. You know, Keith Mitchell is a Cisco player. Brendan Todd is a Cisco player. They were all on the leaderboard, right? Maverick McNeely is a Cisco and AT&T player. He was at the event. So you start to see, like, with that caveat and the way the tour is pushing these sponsors to do to spend with players, that is going to ensure that some of these smaller events have top flight players because of the players that they sponsor. If you want to be a top flight player, then one thing you should do is go to Club Champion. <laughs> hey, Look at that tie. That, that, that was a pretty good segue. Okay. Brendan Porath, I am coming for you with the uh, segues into ad reads. Um, so, okay. This episode is brought to you by, uh, by Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom fitted and custom built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. I'm just saying those numbers. I believe that they're true, but those are those are large numbers. I mean, it's uh, kind of so, cool when you go there and you see, like, all the shafts you see all on, them the on the wall and all yeah, the different yeah. heads, and it's like, you know, I, I, you, I have to go do my iron fitting. I'm going to schedule that. You, um, you've got it. You, this has been lingering for a while. I did, I did a woods fitting a while ago, and it was uh, really helpful. But in any case, another thing that uh, Club Champion uses is uh, industry-leading technology like TrackMan and Sam Putt Lab, and they build to the tightest tolerances in the industry – Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22-yard increases off the tee and an average of 10-yard improvements in dispersion. That would help you out at uh, at uh, TPC Scottsdale. More yardage and a tighter dispersion, like we were talking about. That's what about. you need. You need to stay out of the desert um, with, uh, with custom-fitted equipment. Um, 
So, uh, Andy, although you have not done your iron fitting and you've been talking about doing it for about a year now, I would say you have had previous experiences with Club Champion. You've got uh, gotten fitted by Club Champion fitters. And, uh, you know, what are those experiences like? Great. I, I've been I, I've been a loyalist with this brand since really they started since they were like fitting out of their garage. So this is I one of the things I love. I'm I'm one of those people that I go get fit and then like I I just I don't change the equipment until I'm forced to. The reason I need an iron fitting is that the epoxy wore out on my clubs and the head started to fall off. <laughs> that those were club champion irons from like 12 years ago. I just like the thing that you also I, recently I, broke your driver. So yeah, I, the thing yeah. I find comfort in is that I get fit and I know that I've tried everything and I don't need to try anything else and I'm good to go. And these are the irons I'm going to play. And I don't even think about it. That's the beauty. The comfort I find is I don't have to think about equipment until they break. One of the things I really appreciate is that I went to club champion more than once. And the fitter was like, you'd be absolutely crazy to switch from that driver to something new. You'd be crazy. And and so that, I didn't. That driver might have been illegal. Could have been. It was. <laughs> might have been hot. Yeah. So so anyways, like that's the thing that they were like, they're like, your dispersion is infinitely tighter and you might get like one mile an hour ball speed, but it's not worth switching because you're hitting it so much straighter. That's the type of stuff you get. Like it's not. What I've always appreciated is it's not the feeling of I'm going to sell you this. If your clubs, like they have, you hit your clubs. If your clubs are better, they'll tell you they're better and you don't need something. And I think that's super valuable. So the promo code is fried egg. You get 50% mm -hmm. off a club fitting with a uh, club purchase. So there you go. Uh, like if you go want to go fried get an egg, iron fitting, you'll get 50% of off your iron fitting with the purchase. Perfect. So you're talking okay. about like $75 or so, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good deal. Uh, so the code is fried egg. That's 50% off the uh, cost of your fitting with the purchase of a club club champion. Uh, thank you for sponsoring this episode. Why don't we get back into designated events? Not sure where you want to take it from here. You know, one thought I had when you were talking, you know, about the relationships between different kinds of events, right? Between the non-designated and designated events is that having some of this clarity is going to help things like a documentary about a PGA tour season, <laughs> right? Cause I've been thinking about this recently with, uh, with full swing coming out and we have a, we have a whole separate podcast feed, uh, full swing thoughts with you, Brendan and Joseph Lamagna talking about each episode of the series. That's going to be coming out next week when the Netflix documentary yeah, is go released. Subscribe double ad here. Go subscribe. Uh, I think, you know, to be honest, like I think the episodes having recorded them would be compelling whether or not you watch the show. Um, yeah. they are, you know, each of these episodes really focuses on, on players and these podcasts are going to be really deep dive discussions on those, on those subjects. Perfect. So, um, yeah, that it's going to be really fun to talk about the Netflix series as it is, but I think that the documentary makers would have had a lot easier of a time. <laughs> First of all, if live haven't ha hadn't happened this past season, because that, that was probably a tricky thing for them to deal with. But also if the PGA Tour season itself just had a little bit more structure, because one of the things that Drive to Survive really benefited from is the extreme structure of the F1 season, where every driver shows up every week, every team is always there, 
everybody cares about the season-long championship. In fact, cares so much about the season-long championship that they care about whether they get fourth or fifth, not just first, right? And and that structure gives the documentary series something to hang on to, right? Those are the dramatic stakes of the season. And right now, the PGA Tour season doesn't really have coherent, dramatic stakes that you can follow from beginning to end, partly because nobody cares about the FedEx Cup, <laughs> but also partly because the schedule doesn't differentiate between events, doesn't clarify which events are the big ones. And as a result, you know, events very rarely have all the best players at them. So you don't have players going head to head. You don't have Rory and Rom going head to head. I mean, Rory and Rom have not appeared in the same event yet this year, but they're going to in Scottsdale. And that's really helpful for understanding the PGA Tour season as a story. Now, that's not to say that Full Swing won't be really good, but it focuses on players, right? It fo each episode focuses on a player. It's not a documentary really about the PGA Tour season as a season in the way that the Drive to Survive episodes are. Those episodes are about that season of F1, and maybe this new structure for the PGA Tour season will allow people like us, people like Netflix, you know, or just normal fans to understand the PGA Tour season in terms of storytelling. And I think that that's going to be really helpful. Yeah. And I, th I think that's why it's so fascinating to see how this shakes out in 2024. I think that when you think about it, if you do the, the backwards math here, there's 17 of these designated events. There are, you know, from what the players have, have really harped on, they want the season to be done in August when the FedEx Cup is done. That's what they want. And that's, I think, believe the plan. So you've got eight months of golf and you've got 17 designated events, three of which are the FedEx Cup playoffs, which will be August. So you're down to 14 events in seven months. So really, it shakes out. You need to have two of these a month. You really, what they need to avoid is this run that they have coming up right here where there's four events in five weeks, four elevated events in five weeks. That doesn't, what it does is it kills the other events around it and it, and it creates a situation where players have to play a great deal of golf that might not be on their terms. So with that in mind, when you start to lay out the schedule, that's how you need to think, right? And, and obviously, this is, the clash here is the sponsorship and who's paying up. And, and, and this is not, they are not going about this in a process that would be ideal. You know, ideally, they would just create the events and then let the schedule fall from there, you know, and that's not going to be the case. So thinking about that through, like what's vitally important for the, the PGA tour is to, you know, is to structure this properly so that the players are really happy because some players, like, I think this is one of the big drawbacks and something they can hit on with live. Some players like to play before majors. Other players don't. There should never be an elevated event the week before, you know, and there shouldn't be a, a run of elevated events leading into the week before because every, you know, every major 
the players should get to really like the we're talking about the top players. They should get to want to prepare the way they want to for these big tournaments. That's what matters the most to them. Like, you know, this is obviously the long-term battle with Liv. Like it's not over. It is going to be a long-term battle unless something monumental happens with Liv that they just fall apart completely. I wouldn't bet on that. They've already invested a lot of money. I don't see them quitting anytime soon. So if you're talking about your long-term battle with Liv, this is such a very important aspect of it is how these elevated events work, how the schedule you know, really caters to the way a player wants to prepare for these major championships. Because you know, you hear like... You've heard, I think, one of the things I, I've listened to a couple of the recent No Laying Up podcasts. They've had John Rahm, Will Zal Torres. The thing I've been fascinating about hearing these players talk about, you know, things. Will Zal Torres, obviously a PGA Tour loyalist. He talked about, I'm not going to do anything that that takes away my opportunity to play in major championships, right? That is a big carrot that the PGA Tour has managed to hold on to. Who knows how long? But you also should, with that in mind, not only playing, but preparing exactly the way I want to prepare for a major championship. And that's where Liv has some really wacky things. Like one one major, they're playing the week before. Another major, they aren't playing the week before. Where, where if, if I'm, you know, Phil is obviously one of their big players who's had, you know, he is historically in his career like to play the week before. So all of a sudden he's in his 50s. He's got only a few major championships. I'm not counting him out after that PGA win. You know, it's it, as crazy as that was. He's not like a real threat, but, you know, he went out and won one in the last two years. And so you have to, but if I'm Phil and I only have a few bullets left in majors, like what if, if I can't prepare exactly the way I want to prepare, like, and this goes for other players, right? You know, it it is, it is vitally important to create a schedule that's player friendly, that makes sense. And that's the hard thing for the tour is going to be doing that where, you know, it's up to the sponsor to pay up for this. So does that mean that they really shouldn't rotate designated events? Because that would just create a new kind of chaos every season, right? I mean, how can that be avoided if they're really planning to rotate designated events? Because it's just going to change every year. You can rotate a date, right? So you can move event dates around if you want to rotate. So maybe it's the set date is this is an elevated week and an event slides in and out. I think that one of the things that they, it's ironic, right? Like with the LPGA, they have done a horrible job with setting up convenient travel for their (laughs) players. That matters because if you're a bottom tier LPGA player, you're not making enough money in order to have this crazy travel schedule. It it will with the PGA Tour, that shouldn't be a concern. And that might end up like a good example is this Pebble Beach event. Pebble Beach is in its current construct, where it is in the schedule is because of the history of the West Coast swing. You can drive like we had a podcast with Zach Blair a couple of weeks ago. He talked about how he's driving the entire West Coast swing. That's super convenient, super cool. But like that's not something that you have to keep in mind. Like it's important probably for caddies of lower tier players, but maybe you could make a tweak that makes life a little bit easier for caddies. You know, maybe there's a travel stipend or something. But the idea, like the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro Am to me feels like an event. That's a that's a sponsor that sponsors two events. You've got the super t- this, you know, we talk about what 
makes waste management. It's it's kind of like transcended just the golf crowd and gotten into the greater sports crowd thanks to its atmosphere, its state. Pebble Beach Pro-Am is one of those events that has the ability to transcend the golf crowd. So to me, that makes sense for an elevated event. Now, like what goes against it is the Pro-Am aspect of it, but it's Pebble freaking beach. Like you want to see, this is one of the best courses in the world. You want to see the best players in the world playing at Pebble Beach year in, year out. And it's an opportunity to draw in a bigger bucket of fans. So does that event make sense on the West Coast swing in this current date? The weather's not great. It's right, right. around Riviera. It's right around Waste Management. It's right. It's close to Century. It's close to Torrey Pines. These are all events that I feel like could have a pretty good claim at a designated tag. So maybe we look at it and say, hey, let's move Pebble back. What does Pebble look like in June or July or maybe even later in the year? You know, right. what does Pebble the Beach Pebble look Tour like as a playoff as a playoff event? How about yeah. Pebble Beach as a playoff event? Now that would run counter with the Pro Am, which is not something they're gonna budge on. So maybe we look at a March date or an April date. All you're only getting better and better weather on the Monterey Peninsula as you move away from February. And travel shouldn't be a concern. As you're going to see with the Netflix show, all the top guys fly private. Like, we should not be, like, traveling <laughs> For designated from... events specifically, the travel is not a huge part of the equation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So thinking about it that way, right? Like, what are your strongest events? The other thing that the West Coast events really create a great appeal about is their time that they are telecasted. You know, it is super advantageous to get later in that coverage window because all of a sudden your demo, which is like middle-aged people, golf, like I know they want to be younger, but the demo is middle-aged people. You know what gets easier and easier the later and later things are on is for people to watch golf on the weekend because they have less and less child activities. You know, like the majority of golf fans either have children or are like past the age of children. Make it easier for them to watch. Have it on later. You know, West Coast events, like, I I don't know. I think that Florida portion should maybe go a little bit earlier into this in the year because in the winter, people are more at home, and that West Coast swing should push later so you can take advantage of later telecast times. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's going to be some musical chairs with these events, moving them around, finding new places, and we'll probably see some of that in the 2024 season. You know, there was a quote in the Joel Beal article about the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, which everybody should read in Golf Digest. It was excellent. Um, that the thing about the 2023 season is that it gets us to 2024. So the players, PGA Tour executives, sponsors are all expecting things to change next season. And maybe some of this shifting around of events in the schedule can be a feature of next season, or as you're mentioning, it could potentially be just a reality of the PGA tour schedule going forward. Because, you know, if you want to find specific weeks for designated events, but you also want to rotate sponsors in and out of designation, then you're really going to have to move things around on a year to year basis, which would be enormously complicated, I'm sure. But it would also solve some of the potential problems with the cadence of the PGA tour schedule that you've outlined here. So 
I think we've talked about that well enough. People have an idea of what the the large scale scheduling ramifications of designated events could be. Basically, it's going to introduce some chaos, some uncertainty and some difficulty into the schedule for PGA Tour executives, especially and potentially for players. You have one more point. One more thing on that is if you listen to No Laying Up's interview with John Rahm, obviously a very influential player. He really talked about the his his him pushing for more international elevated events. So that yeah. would also throw just another wrinkle and you know, difficult. I mean, this is the tough thing about these events. He was talking about how he really wants an elevated event in Spain. <laughs> right. You know, are you going to do that just for John Rahm? I mean, maybe he might be important enough. <laughs> and and so you're talking about like, can you, you know, if you think about it, like the balance of, of, Hey, these, a lot of our top flight inter- international players probably would like to see three or four events played internationally. Yeah. And how do you do that within the construct of like when you take out the majors and the players, you're down to 12. And then how do you fit it into the fields, right? So, so that's just another it's going this is I'm not envious of the tour here with the situation. It's it's going to be extraordinarily challenging and it it does like to my earlier point like if this is not the ideal construct with the with the sponsors. It adds like a whole new layer of 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 having of hoops and hurdles to jump through the ideal situation would honestly be if you just started from scratch brand new events yeah i mean uh, you know a lot of sponsors are going to be unhappy uncomfortable not only sponsors of non-designated events who don't want to pay up but even sponsors of designated events who maybe feel like they're paying too much or feel like they don't want their event to be designated in style And that sort of opens up the other question, the other big question I have about designated events, which is format, field size, qualification criteria, Monday qualification. What do these events look like? What can these events look like? What should they look like? Should there be cuts? So, you know, maybe we just start with the field size question. What do you think would be the ideal field size for a designated event? Because it's certainly not going to be 140, right? Yeah. Um, I think in that like 120, as we've seen with the world ranking formula, you know, I think there needs to be a critical amount of players. But what I, w- I don't like, I do not like the idea of, of the top 125 in the FedEx Cup allowing you a... I don't think finishing 120 in the FedEx Cup should grant you a spot in every elevated event. That's that's I, not if, a designated style accomplishment. Yeah. If you okay. if you look at what a resume of a player that's from 100 to 125, I don't think they are people that should like I don't think that should qualify being a, a, a admittance into the great events of golf. I think, you know, when you look at, when you start to get to about 70 in the FedEx Cup you start to look at players like season and you say, you know what? They had a good season. When you get to the top 40, you start to look at it and you think about some guys that had narrow misses. Like you have a guy like Denny McCarthy who narrowly missed making it to East Lake last year. You look at his, his year and you're like, you know, he was a good, good PGA tour player for years uh, before this. And this was a great year for him. 
So you start to think like, I think the right number is is 50, but you need to get, you probably want to get to about 120, 100 person field at the minimum, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. But, you know, you've just gone through a logic of why when you start to admit players who are more in that 100 to 120 range, you begin to dilute the strength or the, not the strength of the field in an OWGR sense, but the eliteness of the field. When you begin to let in that many players, you have to start going to players who, I don't know, you you kind of look at their resumes and you're like, well, should they be playing in this designated event? Should they have a shot to win this? Because anything can happen on any given week in golf. That's one of the problems with the entertainment product is that it's such a high variance sport that there's no guarantee that it's going to come down to John Rahm and Roy McElroy in the end. So the more players you have an event in an event, the more chances you have that you get a finish that just doesn't feel like a designated event finish because you have numbers 107 and 121 in the FedEx Cup going head to head down the stretch. I mean, so that's the issue, I think. And also the issue is that the top, top players, the ones who are trying to be who we're trying to pacify here that the PGA Tour is trying to keep in the fold, the top players want these fields to be probably as small as possible, right? <laughs> Um, and so they're pushing for probably like 60, 70, like WGC style. And, and so how do you, you know, is 120 the compromise or does it need to be lower than that? I feel like a hundred when I think about it is the number okay. I like. I like a hundred with a cut to the top 60. Yeah. You know, I don't think it makes any sense to have people hanging around that are, you know, I, the, the spread is so amusing when you have the no cut events and you see the highest, the highest score to the lowest score. It's always, it's an amusing thing, but I don't think that I think that should go now. Like what if we say, if we're going to do a hundred, what if we have 60 exempt spots for the top 60 players on the PGA tour? I think another exemption should go to the corn Ferry tour player player of the year. So you have 61 exemptions. From there, you start to build out qualifications that are based on the current year. So I think maybe there are 10 spots that go to the top 10 in the FedEx Cup. And obviously with all of this, I mean, a whole nother pod is FedEx Cup reform. What should a designated event get versus a non-designated event in FedEx Cup points? And it should not be very close. Right now, they're it's 50 points difference, which is laughable. <laughs> I wonder uh, if that's going to change. I mean, they love to. that, right? Like, like I, it really does have to change. That's like a big thing. But man, uh, you know, it just seems like that's going to be so hard to change because the, the, the motivation to make all these events to fool people, not only sponsors, but fans into thinking that all the events are more or less the same kind of significance. The impulse toward that is so strong. Um, but We'll see. We'll see. But I agree that that needs to happen. So we're at 71 spots with the top 10 of the existing year's FedEx Cup. All right. From there, like, so we, we have we have 29 more spots. One idea, I think, is getting informed players into the event. Really, obviously, you're accomplishing that with the FedEx Cup exemption. But also, I think one of the really, I think, great, aspects of golf, one of the things I really enjoy is that open qualifying series leading into the open championship where an event has, you know, this guy's going to win, but there's also that carrot of, you know, the top three guys that aren't exempt into the open in this event are getting in. 
something similar, maybe it's the top five guys not otherwise exempt, are getting a spot in this designated event. A le- this could be a life-changing opportunity for somebody. You know, if you go last week, that wouldn't be exempt to get in. Um, you know, that Brent Grant, for example, a rookie who's playing the week of he's playing the week of his life at Pebble, and he and he's going into the final round with a real chance to play his way into a designated event in the near future while he's in form. That's the impo- important thing: is golf is fickle. Players come in and out of form. How do we get the most informed guys into this event? So there's, let's just say that there's 10 spots that are given out in that space of time between designated events to inform players. Now we're at 81 spots of 100, all right? I think a Monday qualifier would be extraordinary when you limit the field to the top. The only exempt players are the top 60 in last year's FedEx Cup. You know, and then like players that are really informed, like an example of a player really informed that probably would get in that played a Monday qualifier for the waste management, Ben Griffin, a rookie who is, I think he was top 30 in FedEx Cup points going into the waste management, has had a great, great start to his professional career. Like Taylor Montgomery would be another example of a guy that would be automatically in, in this, in this thing. But then you have this like, you have guys that are legitimate tour pros that are playing a Monday qualifier, and maybe you make it 36 holes. You you make the Monday qualifier only available to Corn Ferry tour players or PGA tour players. And if there's an excess, you have a you know a a pre qualifier, right? Don't schedule Corn Ferry events opposite these events. Make this the you know like the players the only event that matters this week. Don't have opposite events. Have this this Monday qualifier be really something. And guess what? It's another television product that you could sell. It could be part of your rights package is a Monday qualifier. Who doesn't want to come off a weekend of golf with like, hey, there's another event on Monday. It's enjoyable to have it on in the background. Golf is one of the few sports that you could kind of keep a passing interest of it, you know, depending on what your occupation is in the background. People do it uh-huh. every year with the Masters, right? Yeah. So Monday qualifier, four spots that, it has more of like a U.S. Open, like one of the most fascinating aspects of the U.S. US Open is final qualifying. Absolutely, this would have this would give this thing a final qualifying feel. So have ten spots through that. So now we're up to ninety-one, right? If my math's right. Are we doing sponsor exemptions? I this is a tricky question. I think it should be spot. There should be a few sponsors exemptions, but it should be limited to the one whatever your one twenty-five PGA Tour player. Okay. That way, so there need to be restrictions. Are sponsors going to be happy about that? Because we're already worried about sponsors being unhappy with the PGA Tour. Listen, the the job of the PGA Tour here, a sp- unhappy sponsor is one thing. This is their response to an existential threat. That has to be priority number one with every decision that they make. It cannot be is the sponsor going to be happy? Obviously, if the sponsor's mass exodus, but there's a balancing act. We're delivering you the best players in the world. Your sponsor exemption, it just doesn't matter in comparison to us delivering you Rory, Rom, Spieth, you know, Justin Thomas to your event. Mm-hmm. That That is the thing, right? Yeah, we, we are giving you a semi-major has to be the message, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you're paying more. Yes, there might be some differences in how the event feels on site, what concessions are doing, 
and sponsor exemptions will be different, but you're getting like a really, really premium product here that a lot of people are going to care about and be excited about. I guess that that really does have to be the message. But I, but I love that. I, I What you just laid out there sounds really exciting. And there's a mix of- I've got a few you know, more spots. You've got a few more spots? You didn't fill up the sponsor exemptions? No, the, you got one to sponsor 91. exemption. One, one sponsor exemption? One sponsor what? exemption. We're at oh 92. Okay. I don't think that's realistic, but whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll go. We're we'll at go 92, right. and now I'm pulling from two other places. Okay. European Tour. Yeah. DP World Tour, six spots. Okay. And then the top two players on the Corn Ferry Tour are in. Oh, and nice. You don't have an opposite Corn Ferry event. You're giving people <clears throat> legitimate, like you're investing in your Corn Ferry um, Tour by having these spots. You're building exposure. What if, you know, what if Pearson Cootie is in the mix? And I don't think anyone would disagree that Pearson Cootie could play in this event and contend. I was literally just going to call it Andy's Pearson Cootie exemption um, when you when you brought this idea up. But I think that's great. And, you know, we've been looking for ways to get Corn Ferry Tour players involved more quickly on the PGA Tour. You know, first of all, there is a value to players proving themselves over the course of a season on the Corn Ferry Tour. I don't think we need to get rid of that. But I also think that winning three events in, you know, in, in one season is a, is a particularly, I don't, I just don't think that's a useful way. The, the only kind of, you know, immediate elevation opportunity that there should be these designated events you know, give an opportunity for the PGA Tour to get some players who maybe belong on the tour. D- just give them a chance, and they might they might not take advantage of it, and that's okay. But uh, you know, I think that's that's really nice. But you know, who's going to be really you know not stoked about everything that you just laid out? Sixty one on the FedEx Cup. Yeah. So you know. What are you going to do about those guys? Or are we not worried about them anymore? Because we've been worried about these sort of mid-tier PGA Tour players who just sort of stick around, keep their cards year after year, but don't really bring much of value in terms of entertainment to the fans. And, you know, they've been kind of determining policy for a long time. That's the reason why we have the schedule that we have partly you know the sponsors are also a factor but the players pushing for the rank and file players pushing for events not to be demoted that they rely on is a big reason why the PGA Tour schedule is what it is now in the live era it seems like the power of the rank and file PGA Tour player is descending and that decisions are being made that don't really serve them directly because of the threat that Liv has pre- presented. And so I wonder if you think that in creating the designated events that the PGA Tour is going to continue to be able to kind of push past these players 60 to 120 in the FedEx Cup who have been determining so much policy in the past. Again, what what is the core thesis of these elevated events have to focus on? Preventing your existential threat. Yeah. So from that standpoint, you cannot be worried about, you know, we're, we're seeing it with Liv. The high profile player defections have slowed down since really since the Delaware meeting. 
And as those have slowed down, the defections have become Mito Pereira. Great young player that I'd be excited about, but about playing, like seeing, going and seeing play, but not somebody who's going to make a huge difference if he stays or leaves. Don't forget um, about Bassi Munoz. Yeah, same, same bucket, right? So creating this for the big players and the other message that to players 60 through 120 is we're, we're providing you a number of opportunities to elevate yourself. Like these other smaller events are going to have less stars in them. They give you more opportunity to play your way into these big events. Every week, every week you play, you have the opportunity to play your way into an elevated event. But that's exactly what they don't want to do, right? They don't want to have to play their way in. They want <laughs> the they want the exemptions. Yeah, I know, but that's I mean it, it's it's not what they want though. That the meritocracy is not what FedEx 60 through 120 really want. I mean, I, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush here. I'm sure that there are some guys in that range who you know, want to see these changes that seem to be underway. But, you know, those have been pretty comfortable spots in the past with a lot of exemptions into very high dollar events. And they're going to lose quite a bit of that in this new PGA Tour schedule. Now, are they going to lose all of it? No, I think their lives are still going to be pretty comfy if they're in that range. And maybe they deserve that because being 60 through 120 in the FedEx Cup is nothing to turn your nose up at. That is a major accomplishment for a golfer. These guys are amazingly good. But should they be getting, you know, these kind of automatic exemptions into any event that they want on the PGA Tour? Uh, I, I don't know about that. And and so it, it might be a tough sell, though. I, I think, I mean, do you agree that it'll be a tough sell or do you think that this is going to you know resolve itself? a little more easily than I think it is. Um, I think that the the power has shifted on the PGA Tour to the point of where it it is a, you know, it, it matters less, to be yeah. completely honest. I think the that, Delaware delegation is ascendant, for sure. Yeah. The 30 players who were in Delaware meeting, the top players, it seems like that was a big moment where that group of players was sort of announcing we are the new power source on the PGA Tour. I'm going to read off players 60 to 70 in, in the FedEx Cup last year. And okay. just to give you an idea of, of what they were, um, I just got to find where I had it pulled up here. So, all right, 60 to 70, 60, or 61 to 70, say top 60. So 61, Alex Smalley, Mark Leishman, Anirban Lahiri, Troy Merritt, Taylor Moore, Cam Davis, John Ha, Brendan Todd, Lanto Griffin, Trey Mullinax. Okay. Yep. Are that's, we losing that's who any we're talking about. Yeah. About about these guys not do you you know, based off of their relevance the last year, are any of these guys like are you crying because they're not in there? Like that's that's the reality, is that these are the players that you know, they're nice players. I'm not trying to demean them. They they had good years, but they don't feel like you're missing out. And and really, like if you start to scroll through the the first guy <clears throat> from last year that I feel like, okay, if we if we missed here, it would be a big miss is when we get into the forties. And in the forties, at the back end of the forties, you got Fleetwood at forty seven, Siwoo Kim at forty eight, Turrell Hatton at forty nine, 
and Adam Hadwin at 50. Like to me, <clears throat> that's where you get at like 47 through 49, you're, where you have Hatton and, and Fleetwood. That feels like, okay, like those are guys that should be at elevated events. Yeah. And, and this is a big, you know, a long running disjunction between fans and the PGA Tour, where fans, those names that you read off in the 60s, with the exception of maybe Mark Leishman, who went to live last year, right? Fans really don't follow those players in general. Casual fans don't know who they are. We know who they are, but they're not bringing value to most fans watching at home. But the PGA Tour and the way it was run valued those opinions of those players just as much as anybody else's on the PGA Tour. And so I guess the hope is recently that that dynamic has shifted a little bit and that the weight of the word of John Rahm, Roy McIlroy, Justin Thomas, etc., is starting to take on something more like its true weight that it has with fans, right? That the importance of what they want to do with the PGA Tour is more in line with what the fans want to see from the PGA Tour. At least that is the hope here, and that's what a lot of these speculations that we're going through about what the designated events could be are based on. That yeah. these top players can start to make some decisions that would be more aligned with what the fans want. I think the important thing to remember, too, is that players who finish like 60, 65th, they likely have played well enough at periods of time that they would have played their way into designated events a handful in the given year. And that's, that's right. the important thing is that they aren't being excluded. Like the example here, like you've got Alex Smalley and Taylor Moore, who I, I think, I think Smalley was a rookie too. Taylor Moore was a rookie. Those guys had sensational years as rookies, right? And those guys are getting the opportunity to effectively play many major championships, right? That's the thing. The majors are even more closed off than these elevated events would be. Like the majors are harder to get into. Like you, you need to be top 50 in the world rankings or, you know, one of these qualifications, like they aren't available to rookies. And this might be what the PGA tour veterans hate to hear, but these, these elevated event, these designated events, these mini major championships effectively would be so wide open to anyone with a PGA tour card, because all you have to do is play well in a week in, in a week leading up to the PGA tour event. And you are in, you know, if there are three spots in effectively each event leading in for the top three non-exempt, all you have to do really is finish in the top, top seven, top eight in a given week. You have to play exceptionally one time, you know, in a year to play in one of these events. And that what I really like is it, it rewards a hot hand. Maybe I'm just thinking about this now. There's a, also you could cut back a certain, exempt number maybe you cut back to what did we start with 50 or 60 uh, 60 60 so maybe we cut back to 50 and there's a 10 top 10 non-exempt from the last elevated event to next elevated event so if you get uh -huh. hot in these elevated events those designated events sorry these designated events if you top 10 that would be pretty cool that you earn your way into the next one okay i think that's a good place to wrap up We've yeah, got the Phoenix we Open we coming talk up this about week these for hours. 
first full field uh, designated event. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting subject. It, it sort of intersects with a lot of different topics that we've been talking about for years now, and uh, and we'll see how they turn out. But my feeling is that this week's waste management is going to be a really fun watch. We'll see. I, I don't think I remember seeing Rory McIlroy at this event before. I, I'm not sure if I'm right about that or wrong about that, but just the fact that He's there along with John Rahm and all of the other top players on the PGA Tour is very, very exciting to me. And so in general, you know, we're not always the most positive about the PGA Tour. We are the furthest thing from PGA Tour Yes Men. But this has us, I think, legitimately excited about the future of the tour schedule. I think that we're going to see some real improvements. And that kind of starts this week. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. So a big new way to support the Fried Egg is to become a Club TFE member. Club TFE is our membership program. It's a wide-ranging offering uh, from content uh, every day, basically, at this point. We have the Club TFE blog. We've got member videos. We've got course profiles. And we've also got deals for club TFE members in the Fried Egg Pro Shop, as well as early access to events, access to a monthly hangout with Fried Egg staff. I'm probably missing a couple of things here, but it's going really well so far. We've been enjoying getting to know the members in Club TFE. There's been a lot of interaction between us and the members on the member site. And so if you'd like to join us or if you're interested in what this offering is, Go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and see what it's all about. It's $120 a year, and it has all the things that I just went through, plus probably a couple of things that I'm forgetting about. So thefriedegg.com slash membership, Club TFE. All right. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.